X-ray. And welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's May 8th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines... Charlize the Shadowbox Harris from our partner station The Numbers interviews Rachel Banks from Multnomah County Health Department and an interview with Dr. Maxine Dexter, also a candidate for House District 33. I believe that universal health care in Oregon is a really important way to jumpstart the economy. First up is today's Quick 6 local rundown. Oregon's reopening is beginning cautiously. Restaurants, bars, gyms, and salons in some Oregon counties could open as early as May 15th. That's under a framework unveiled by Governor Kate Brown on Thursday. Here's some of what you need to know about Governor Brown's plan. As of May 15th, restrictions will automatically be eased statewide for child care services. Some retail categories, such as malls, art galleries, furniture stores, jewelry stores, boutiques, basically places where you don't have to do a lot of touching, a lot of breathing on people, and you don't have to lick a bunch of stuff. So if you're in the furniture store, don't lick a bunch of stuff. Beginning on May 8th, the state will begin accepting applications from counties to begin reopening. May 8th is today. Regions must be able to meet the criteria that shows cases of COVID-19 are decreasing or largely non-existent and that they have the capacity to test, treat and track. Say it with me. Test, treat and track cases that might emerge. And beginning May 15th, counties that meet those prerequisites will be allowed to enter phase one. In phase one, restaurants and personal care services like salons, barbershops and gyms where there's more breathing and stuff, those are allowed to reopen. Those businesses will be subject to strict guidelines that include mandatory use of face masks by staff, occupancy limits, and mandatory social distancing measures. Gatherings up to 25 people will also be allowed. Once in phase one, counties will need to operate for three weeks without showing an increase in infections. Otherwise, counties must be able to adequately track infections that do arise. If they can do that, they're eligible for phase two. The second phase is still being worked out, likely to include social gatherings of up to 100 people, reopening further businesses, and limited visitations at care facilities like nursing homes where there have been several outbreaks. A third phase would reopen large events and gatherings. However, according to the governor's office, that is unlikely to happen until a treatment or vaccine becomes available. And the governor's office has directed all large gatherings to be canceled through September. So it's pretty likely that we're going to be in phase two for a long time. And the whole game here, folks, is that we're trying to avoid a big second wave like happened with the Spanish flu. And then even the next year, it had a third wave. Separate from any of those phases, the governor's office will provide guidelines that allow some summer school camps and youth programs to operate statewide. Here's the quote from Governor Brown at Thursday's conference. This virus is still dangerous. It still poses a great threat. Until there is a vaccine, unfortunately, we will not be able to go back to life as we knew it. Your daily dose of data. Oregon Health officials Thursday reported 70 new confirmed cases, bringing the state's total to 2,957. In Oregon, 121 people are now known to have died from COVID-19. And we now know about 34 cases in the National Frozen Foods Plant in Albany. That was 30 workers and four household or family members. In southwest Washington, Clark County reporting the county's total number of known cases is 375, with 23 people known to have died from COVID-19. The latest statewide data in Washington shows 15,905 diagnosed cases and 870 related deaths. Nationwide, we've gone past 76,000 deaths. 
In jobs news, another 20,000 Oregonians filed for unemployment last week, bringing the total to over 380,000. Remember the last time we did this, it was 360,000. That is another decline in the number of new unemployment cases, but still a record. And now one in five Oregon workers is unemployed. That means if you have five workers, one would be unemployed. If you had 20 workers, four would be unemployed. If you had 1.9 million workers, 380,000 would be unemployed. Oregon has now paid out $682 million in unemployment benefits, but we're still not in any immediate danger of running out of money. Oregon's Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund is one of the best capitalized in the nation, with over $5 billion on hand at the start of the epidemic. And Oregon's new business tax won't apply to federal coronavirus loans after all. The emergency stimulus loans going to small businesses throughout the state will not be taxable as commercial activity under Oregon's new business tax that supports education. Remember, this was part of the Student Success Act intended to bring in about a billion dollars a year to schools. The tax started in January 1st. The first payments were due on Thursday. In late March, as part of the larger stimulus package, Congress approved the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, to provide businesses with fewer than 500 employees with eight weeks of payroll support. And if businesses maintain levels of employment, the loan is forgivable. Otherwise, it's a two-year loan bearing a 1% interest rate. The question before the Department of Revenue is, if those loans or a meaningful portion of those loans are forgiven, do they become income? Do they become eligible for that commercial activity tax? And the Department of Revenue said, nope. Taxpayers with general questions about the commercial activities tax can email a very long email address. It's cat.help.dor at oregon.gov. I'll say it again, cat.help.dor at oregon.gov or call 503-945-8005. And Ted Wheeler has revealed Portland's proposed budget during the pandemic. Before the pandemic, Wheeler's budget for the upcoming fiscal year did not require any cuts to city bureaus. That is no longer the case. The proposed budget revealed on Thursday projects a $75 million loss in revenue. Wheeler said the city was able to close 90% of the gap by socking away some money in previous years. The annual budget timeline begins in late October, early November, when the mayor's budget guideline is released. Then there are months of analysis, reviews, events, and work sessions. The mayor then releases a proposed budget at the beginning of May. That's where we are now. Then in mid-June, the city council takes action to adopt a finalized budget. Wheeler's proposed budget preserves funding for the Joint Office of Homeless Services. I'm sure we'll be going over some of the things it does cut in future episodes. In political news, could this be the year that Representative Kurt Schrader has a real challenge? GovTrack ranks Schrader the seventh most conservative Democrat. A member of the so-called Blue Dog Coalition, Schrader ranks second on key issues by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. For some perspective, most Democrats vote with the chamber about half the time to two-thirds of the time. Schrader voted with the Chamber of Commerce 83% of the time. And perhaps relatedly, in this campaign cycle, three-quarters of his campaign money, just under a million dollars, comes from political action committees, almost all business-related. He now has $3 million in his war chest since he hasn't had a tough race in the last 10 years. He's been a vocal opponent of Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. He was one of 10 Democrats to support a 2017 Republicans push through the House to ease environmental restrictions on logging in national forests. Representative Alyssa Kenny Geyer, Democrat of Portland, said she was particularly upset with Schrader's sponsorship of a product labeling bill that would have negated many of Oregon's requirements for publicly reporting the presence of toxics in kids' products. Kurt Schrader hasn't had a tough race since 2010 and hasn't faced a tough primary in a long time. Mark Gamba, though, is the mayor of Milwaukee and is the leading opposition candidate. Running on fighting climate change, expanding access to health care, 
He's running with the support of Brand New Congress. That's the group that helped Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to national prominence in 2018. Gamma's got less than $200,000 in the bank, so he might get buried in TV ads and also without the non-pandemic election year's ability to go door-to-door. We'll take a dive into the most hotly contested Republican congressional primary in an episode next week. And folks, we're a little over a week away, about, what, 11 days away from the Oregon primary. Today, May 8th, the City Club will be hosting a Friday forum on the ballot measures from noon to 1.15. You can access the online video live. You can listen to it at X-Ray FM, or you can check it out later at cityclub.org. If you're looking for additional candidate and ballot information, you can go to Vision 2020, X-Ray series of interviews, now over 55 interviews for your listening pleasure, or at least information. And the Wapato Jail finally has its first tenant. Developer Jordan Schnitzer has officially handed over the keys to Portland's never-used Wapato Jail. Announced this week, he has rented the building to homeless service provider Helping Hands Reentry Outreach Centers, a five-year lease. The nonprofit plans to convert the jail into a large service center for the region's homeless population. The organization plans to introduce programs to address mental health issues, addiction, and abuse-related trauma. In the past, Helping Hands has operated exclusively along the Oregon coast. Clatsop, Tillamook, Yamhill, Lincoln counties have 11 shelters along the coast. Its largest shelter in Astoria can fit about 60 people. With the conversion of Wapato Jail, the plan is to house 230 people within the first year of opening. Schnitzer has agreed to charge just $1 a rent a year. The hope, according to Helping Hands, is that Schnitzer will eventually donate the building to them. In the recent past, the county has frowned upon putting public money into reusing Wapato Jail. Helping Hands promised to get off the ground without public money, which had previously been a sticking point. Founder Alan Evans says that he needed $4 million bucks to get started, and through February he'd got four $1 million checks. This is not the end of the story. There's still significant challenges ahead. The area is currently zoned for industrial use. To change the zoning law to allow a shelter, the group will need to get permission from the city council, whose members have spoken out in the past against housing vulnerable people in a former jail. It was a big issue, for instance, in the Joanne Hardesty race for city council. The group plans to meet with the city council in the next few weeks once they have a fully formed plan. Stay tuned for that one. I just have a hunch that the Wapato jail story isn't over. And happiness is Mother's Day this Sunday. You're welcome for the reminder, Gravy, Mother's Bistro, and Radar, a few of the popular brunch spots that are offering delivery. And prepare to be amazed on Friday morning or prepare to plug your ears. The Oregon Air National Guard's 142nd Wing and 173rd Fighter Wing is planning numerous F-15 Eagle flyovers today. The F-15s will be about 1,500 feet above ground level at approximate speeds of 400 miles an hour. Wow, that's fast! Pilots do need a minimum number of hours to maintain proficiency, and so they're saying this isn't costing any extra money. The first flyover is scheduled for 8.50 a.m. And a salute to Peace Health Southwest Medical Center in Vancouver. And Petalpalooza is living on. COVID-19 hasn't canceled Petalpalooza's 16th year. Instead, the organizers are getting creative. The lead organizer says we can't make space for people to gather, but we also can't postpone joy. That's a good attitude. We can't postpone joy. Instead of inviting Portlanders to lead their own uniquely themed bike rides, Pedalpalooza is collecting ideas for different themes for every day of the month. Rather than promoting mass bike rides at scheduled times, organizers want to see bicyclists embracing a theme on solo rides throughout the day. As of now, the calendar includes an under-the-sea day and a superhero day calling for capes and masks. There's a rainbow day, a history day with a scavenger hunt. Hopefully a lot of sanitizer in the scavenger hunt. 
Megan Sanat, the organizer, says that once June rolls around, we're going to have to, and I'm quoting, trust that if someone's doing something weird on their bike, it's part of Pedalpalooza, and I'll ring my bell and wave. Reminder on June 27th, if you see naked people, be aware they're more likely to be well-spaced than in previous World Naked Bike Rides. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. And this evening, you're invited to the first X-Ray House Show, digital concert featuring pure bathing culture in Altadore. Thank you so much for everything you did during the fun drive. It was successful. And thanks to some sponsors, our nut is covered for these concerts. So we will be asking people to make gifts during them, but all of that will be going to the performing artists and other folks impacted by COVID-19. It's a free concert, though. If you can't pay, anybody is welcome. You can see it on YouTube. You can watch it on Facebook at 7 p.m. If you haven't seen Pure Bathing Culture before, they're great. And if you haven't seen Altadori before, well, either have I, but I hear good things. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. First up. Charlize, the Shadowbox Harris from our sister station, The Numbers, interviews Rachel Banks from the Multnomah County Health Department. The interview features questions and answers about COVID-19. Did we answer your questions? If not, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm and we'll feature them in an upcoming segment. I'm Charlize, the Shadowbox Harris, and I'm a media personality on the numbers radio of Out the Box with Shadowbox. Thank you, Rachel Banks of Multnomah County Health Department for joining me today and giving credible information to our community here in Portland. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. So let's start with, uh, with the new alarming projections indicating a spike in cases nationally next month. What measures do you anticipate having to take in the near future? Well, the first thing that we're doing is we want to make sure that um, we have everything in place before we start loosening physical distancing requirements or, and before we um, put people in situations that can continue to uh, expose them to risk. Those are things like um, contact tracing, where we, we need to have the capacity to make sure to follow up with every single person to make sure that we can talk them through if, if uh, let's say I'm positive and, and we can talk through how... Um, how to try to prevent other people in my house from getting sick, how to understand who else in the community might have been exposed um, and, and making sure that we can then follow up with those folks and, and uh, make sure that they have access to the testing that we need and, and all of that. So those are the sort of things that, that need to be in place before we uh, open up. And I think um, thinking about opening, uh, relaxing things without having all the safety measures in place um, could put us at, at risk of having additional um, additional spikes. Yeah, they're different. So the state of emergency allows the state to do a number of things. It allows them to be drawing down federal funds. It allows them to, um, and we have these at the local level also in Multnomah County and, and, and cities have them also. So it, it allows us to move quicker if we need to purchase things, if we need to get funds out uh, the door for our community partners. It allows us to do those things quicker. So that the extension of the emergency declaration, that that allows um, a variety of things to happen at the state state level. That's different than the stay-at-home order. The stay-at-home order is is one of the things, um, one of the directives that the governor has given underneath the or within the emergency declaration this time. But those emergency declarations have time limits to them. And so they need to be extended, you know, and this is a different kind of emergency or disaster than some are where maybe, you know, if it was if it was some sort of flood or something, maybe that 90 days would be sufficient. But 
we are in this pandemic, which which will, is expected to be quite some time ultimately until we have a vaccine. So you could see, I don't want to speak on behalf of the state level, but I don't, uh, you could see multiple extensions just to make sure that we continue to use the, um, the, uh, the, the quickness of the response that those declarations allow us to have. Uh, so what's your response to the many theories about the origin of the virus and to those that feel like this whole thing is being blown out of proportion? So I know that there's a, um, a lot of theories on, on where the virus came from. And, and honestly, I spend more of my time trying to stop the virus um, than, than uh, kind of reading some of the stuff of where it may have come from. I mean, I um, would believe that it came from a certain um, places in China and spread from there. Um, in, in terms of it being uh, blown out of proportion, I understand folks is, um, are being done with this. It's a major shift that we've asked people to take. Um, I know from, from my job how heavy it is at the same time to know that you could have done something to save people's lives and didn't do it. Uh, so we do not take these decisions lightly. Um, and are trading off the, the impact that the decisions have made in terms of physical distancing on people. And then also knowing that anytime you have something like this, our community is gonna get hit harder. And so, um, you know, for me, clearly in my role as, as a public health director, I think these actions are necessary. We've seen that we have flattened the curve. We are not, um, we don't have the, the numbers or the deaths or the disparities that some of the other places have. And that's what prevention looks like. That's what getting on something early looks like. Dr. Maxine Dexter, candidate for House District 33, talks with Jefferson Smith about experiencing COVID-19 up close, the importance of healthcare expertise in Salem, and the path to single payer in Oregon. Dr. Dexter is a critical care pulmonologist. She is running for Mitch Greenlick's seat, who has represented District 43 in Southwest Portland and part of Washington County, for nearly two decades, one of the longer-serving state representatives in Oregon, maybe at this point the dean of the House, is retiring, opening the door for new representation, and Dr. Dexter, I do not believe, is the inspiration for the TV character, but is here with us on X-Ray. Good morning, Doc. Good morning. Who are you and why are you running? <laughs> Thank you for having me. I, just a quick, um, a quick uh, tidbit. It is actually House District 33. I, I don't think most people know them um, by their number, but just in case those out there. Oh, if I misspoke, forgive it. me. No worries. So I uh, grew up outside of Seattle in a working class family, and really am here because of a resilient community and a great public school system. And I've um, worked my way with a union job through um, all the rest of high school, college, and into medical school, and came back to Portland after training in Denver because my family is um, kind of spread along the Northwest Coast. So our, my husband and I wanted to bring our kids back home. And so I'm really running for this seat because I believe in resilient communities that we need to invest in our working class families and that we have to get universal health care for every Oregonian and as a doctor but also uh, the first woman to chair the board of directors at Northwest Permanente the, the Kaiser Permanente uh, physician group I have the experience as well as the insight to be able to lead on health care reform 
Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for being here. And Mitch Greenlick, and obviously I knew him and served with him, and he, uh, and he was he was not a, he was not a medical doctor, but was uh, but was one of the most steeped people in Oregon politics around the intersection between the practice of medicine, between healthcare policy and political decision making. Where do you see the state losing with him stepping away? What expertise do you worry that we might have a gap now, and where might you uh, be able to fill in? That's exactly one of the reasons this is such a timely election. Um, Mitch has been a staunch advocate for um, really focused public health policies throughout his tenure for 20 years. And with him leaving, you know, Andrea Salinas is an amazing um, chair of the health care committee, but she herself and, and others admit that, you know, the policy lives and dies in the details. And those of us who work in healthcare understand that, you know, the policy in a different way than those, you know, who are kind of um, on the on the fringe of, of understanding and what the actual system does. So with Mitch leaving it, it's an amazingly large hole. Um, actually, with Lori Monas Anderson, who's been chairing the healthcare committee in the Senate, leaving as well, there's really a dearth of expertise in the House. And, and Rachel Kruzak is doing an amazing job, and Rob knows, but but those you know folks need more support as well as the leadership of someone who's actually been a healthcare delivery system. Um, leader for years and and i have been in the healthcare system that i believe is a model for what we should be doing at the state level for 12 years and and so i really feel like it's a time where we need healthcare reform um, we spend 27 percent of our budget by far the most um, of any of the line items on healthcare, and we aren't getting what we need out of that investment and we can see that with painful clarity during this um, COVID-19 pandemic. A pulmonologist relates to the lungs, yes? Correct. And that means you've seen COVID-19 up front. I mean, it is not, it is not merely a respiratory disease, but it seems, it seems to, from my lay perspective, uh, impact folks particularly with respiratory problems. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah pulmonary critical care is a historically um, linked um, double Subspecialty. So pulmonologists were the ones who developed um, ventilators actually at Denver where I trained um, years ago. And so critical care is where we are taking care of the sickest um, COVID-19 patients. And that is also my specialty. So I see patients in the clinic um, who have respiratory illnesses, asthma, COPD, lung cancer, you know, anything with shortness of breath and cough. So certainly COVID-19 patients could come there. But right now, because we're really um, trying to keep people home, except for if they're really seriously ill, the majority of the people that I've seen have been in the intensive care unit. What have you noticed in seeing, I, I think you may be, you're not the first person I've talked to who's, I mean, a friend of mine had COVID-19 and experienced the symptoms. My pop might have had it. Uh, what have you noticed? What have you witnessed? How would you uh, describe the experience? It's extremely variable. I think that that's one of the most confounding um, aspects of the uh, infection is that we know that some people are 
tested as positive who had no idea that they were sick. In fact, they weren't sick. They were carriers without any symptoms. And it goes the whole gamut to people who come in fulminantly ill, unable to breathe, and having to be put immediately when they show up in the emergency room on life support. Um, the real confounder is that people can come in and look pretty okay. Um, so many patients have come into the ER and haven't looked that sick and go home, and then they're back within 24 hours fulminantly ill, like really sick, and you just can't predict who that's going to be. So um, it's kept us all on our toes for sure. How is the state doing with our response? Well, I, the first thing I would say is Oregonians have been remarkable in their um, flexibility and their willingness to embrace the public health over their own, you know, personal comfort and even their um, economic well-being. So um, Oregon itself has done a really remarkable job. Um, I think, you know, I, I helped um, encourage Governor Brown to take um, definitive action on social distancing and closing schools um, earlier on. And I will give her great credit. She listened um, to expertise and, and made some really brave choices. And so, um, you know, I, we aren't perfect, but I, I think it's a manifestation of disinvestment in our public health system and our emergency response plans. And, you know, I think people have done absolutely the best they could considering the lack of investment that we've put into it. And so I think that this is an opportunity for us to recognize that we could be better prepared when this does happen again. And frankly, it's going to happen again. Um, and I want to help lead you know, the effort to make sure that we aren't caught on our heels again. Where are the investments, where's the lack of investment playing out most specifically? You mean in terms of like the failure to stockpile PPE, where else? Yeah, no, I think the, the public health infrastructure has been really um, underinvested in. We don't have uh, enough, we have really great community health workers, but we do not have um, the army of folks that we need to be able to do contact tracing, containment, like the way to move forward if we want to reinvest or to reopen our economy is to be able to contain all infections. This is not going away probably in years until we figure out whether and if um, vaccination works. You know, this is a virus that is extremely infectious and we are finding that people may be able to be reinfected. So we aren't sure how we're gonna manage the infection and the risk of infection itself, but what we can do is invest in our public health infrastructure so that we have healthcare workers, public health community workers who can do the contact tracing if you are tested positive, that they can make sure that we get those folks who are at risk um, out of the general population so that it can be contained. And that takes a lot of people and it takes a lot of testing, neither of which we have right now. How how are you, how do you navigate the politics around trying to pass single payer health care in Oregon, where you're going to have to navigate between the scylla of folks who want to you know labor union folks who want to keep uh, who, who want to keep employer based care and the cribdis of folks that just don't want government to pay for much at all? Yeah, it's a really great question. I have um, gotten to test out this um, dynamic as I've been talking to union leaders across the state or, you know, across the major um, groups in our state. 
And um, what I think is um, real is that um, unions have created our middle class. They have created the expectation that we have retirement and certain benefits. And I think it's time to declare a win. Healthcare should be a right that everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a, represented by a union, can expect. If we take that as you know, just a principle that everyone gets health care, the investment that our unions have um, bartered or bargained for um, can then be redistributed to what if we had on-site child care or what if there was affordable subsidized housing? You know, I, now I don't think that employers should be doing that either, but we can broaden our expectations. What if, you know, universal pre-K was um, something that everyone could expect? Then, then we can move to the next thing. But I think that the unions have advanced the position, the social um, uh, security of our working families since they came about. And that's an incredibly important um, role that they've played. And I think it's time to move to the next thing. Like there are many different concerns for our people that they can help us um, bargain for and secure. So I absolutely think, and I've had a lot of support from union leaders on that. It is part of their package and it is going to have to take negotiation, but those unions and employers who have already been providing those coverages need to be, um, in, you know, in effect rewarded for that. And then other companies need to be brought up to that level. Did that From, cost and you? I'm glad that you, oh, I'm sorry, I'm glad you, that you um, mentioned John DeLorenzo because I think, like, there is an argument to be made from a more conservative business-focused um, side. And so it's really focusing on the outcomes and then creating policy that everyone can get behind without the, the partisan identity politics that we are all so used to these days. Did that position cost you some labor endorsements? I'm seeing the endorsements in this race, and it looked like a bunch, it looks like a bunch of labor union uh, endorsements went to another couple other candidates. Yeah, I, I am very lucky to have the um, endorsements that I do have from unions, and um, you know, I think, is, and you would know this better than most, that um, we don't necessarily um, trust physicians um, in this state. You know, I think that I don't have, not, and I, let me walk that back, that's not true. I think that um, unions have been less than um, pleased with some of the physicians and the um, the equity lens that some um, leaders have had in the past. And so I, I don't think that that's the reason. I think the honest reason is that we're all good candidates. We distributed the um, union endorsements throughout us, throughout the group. And um, one of the candidates has, done, has um, employment law background and has done work that is really important work that helps support unions and relationships matter in politics and so I think got the support because um, she was a known entity and, and I think that that you know is if I'm a strategic planner in a union that that makes a lot of sense to me so I, I don't begrudge that I'm, I'm going to be an advocate for working families and unions when I'm elected and and I think that we are all good candidates and and that was really the reason that they're distributed the way they are Dr. Maxine Dexter, candidate for House District 33. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Where can people find out more? Probably the website. 
Yep, MaxineForOregon.com. And I am so grateful for your time and, and your interest. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for giving a crack at serving the state. You be well. Thank you. You too. Thanks to Charlize, Rachel, and Maxine for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Reminder, rate, and review. Thanks to the people who have already given five-star reviews. Those apparently help, so please give more and share it with friends. If you got story ideas, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. And want to give a big thanks to the production team. That's editor extraordinaire Will Romy, Zeke Brunkhart, Casey Colton, Kate Cade, Julia Oppenheimer, Joy Palchik, Miranda Selinger, Ryder Sherwood, and Jamie Zangwill. Co-executive producer Emily Gilliland and I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks to Charlize, the Shadowbox Harris, Kate Kay, and Eric Klein for their original X-ray news pieces, the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, Portland Business Journal, the Willamette Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, the Oregonian, the Statesman Journal, Coin, Street Roots, the News Partners, Bridgeliner, and the Portland Mercury for original stories. Talk to you on Monday. This week is gone. This week was fun. Next week will be another one. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy. X-Ray.